This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Bring Sanders, the Managing Director of Software and Network Transformation from Cisco, and we discuss Cisco's footprint in network transformation across Asia-Pacific and his perspectives on digital transformation and technologies from IoT, blockchain, and quantum networks across Asia. Hi, Brink. Hey, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Appreciate you having me. Where are you currently based in? Uh, I'm actually based in Singapore. So I'm talking to Brink Sanders, Managing Director, Software and Network Transformation, Cisco, Asia Pacific and Japan. So Brink, many thanks for having you on the show and I can have an interesting conversation on what's going on with Software and Network Transformation within the Asia Pacific. To start off, I would like to get to know you better. How do you start your career? Hey, thanks for that, Bernard. And again, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. So how did I start my career? So a business executive and a sales leader within Cisco, I'm probably a little bit different than many of the others. I actually started my career in consulting. And in the consulting days, I was focused very heavily in the telecom space. Started out with strategy, but to be honest, I was young. You know, From a strategy perspective, I was using my brain, but I felt like I wanted more experience. So I, I moved pretty quickly into operations consulting. So really helping providers look at the broad set of challenges that they had and helping them improve processes, deliver better business outcomes, all that sort of stuff. From there, I stayed in consulting for a long time, a couple of other things. And actually, Cisco was a client of mine. That's how I got introduced to Cisco. And interestingly, a big part of my career at Cisco was actually uh, in operations. So I came in and actually worked inside the company for many years. So I kind of have that benefit of being on the consulting side, helping companies, advising them on how to do things and deliver their business outcomes. I've been a seller trying to help companies see what they could absorb. I've actually implemented technology and then I've had to own the operations of that technology. So it's it's a bit unique that I've sat in a lot of the different seats relative to what we do out in the market. In your career journey, what are the interesting lessons learned then? You know, there are so many. You, you look across the various leadership examples, but the one that I'd go to, because I think it hits at the heart of what I see day in and day out working with the teams that I do, the customers, our partners, you have a broad range of people that are involved in delivering and implementing technology for the benefit of our customers. You have the technical folks, and I would say that over the years, I've gotten to know and have a deep appreciation for the amount of expertise and knowledge that's in the technical side. But I think the technical side, a lot a lot of times will oversimplify what it takes on the business side to actually get something implemented and done. I've done a lot of work on the business side as well, taking technology and implementing. And I can tell you that a lot of the business folks that I've worked with sometimes underestimate how challenging the actual technical problems are to solve. I've kind of lived my career at this intersection. And probably the biggest lesson is that the more that you can walk out, try to walk a mile, so to speak, in both shoes, the more you get an appreciation for what it really takes to drive change inside of an organization, and in particular, driving technology at the core of those changes to make it really work. And I can tell you that in my experience over all the years of each of those seats, practicality wins out over everything else. So it's a lot more about common sense and less so much on about trying to define it in a certain way that you think it could work, but actually the actual ground looks very different from how it should be. Am I right to say that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We get very excited about new technology and the promises that it has to deliver for, for you as a, as, as a customer or, you know, if you're taking it out to the market for your customers. And I think on the business side, you get really excited about, you know, these huge achievements that you can have. Getting to those achievements, getting to those business outcomes often requires a lot of very practical soul searching on what's going to really work. How do you really make things stick? There's there's great, like, you know, I, I hate to use the term change management. I mean, in the consulting world, it's way overused, but there's writers like John Cotter who, you know, have, have studied this over and over again. And I can tell you that there is a lot of truth in those lessons about the grit that it takes, the absolute practicality and really being realistic about what you can achieve, but still keeping the bar high. I don't want to say, I don't want to suggest that it's, you know, holding back and being held down to what's practical. I think it's more about a high bar, but really being realistic about what you can achieve dealing with those technological challenges, not expecting perfection, right? It's all those things that are more about, you know, owning the, the, the grit that it takes to get through it rather than the hype on either side, whether it's the technology or the business. So we come to the main topic of the day, Cisco. And also I would like to hear your perspectives on software and network transformation in the Asia Pacific. To start off with, to help my audience, can you introduce Cisco as a company and its current vision and mission to my audience? Yeah, absolutely. Cisco's been around for a long time. So we were founded in 1984. Today, we've got about 72,000 employees worldwide at about 480 offices, and we operate in 165, actually more than 165 countries. So it's a large multinational organization. Our vision is to change the way the world works, lives, plays, and learns. I'll come back to that as we go through the conversation, because one of the things that I love about being at Cisco is I can pick out things we do every day that hit each one of those things. So I'll actually talk a little bit about that. From a strategy perspective, you know, we create solutions built on intelligent networks that solve our customers' challenges. And it sounds like a simple, straightforward line, but I can tell you that we live every word of that every day. From a solution perspective, we don't just deliver one technology. It's a broad set. It is all predicated on the network, and I will talk a little bit about that. You know, I've had the benefit of working, consulting to, and working with a lot of companies over my career. And one of the things that I think is just a huge differentiator for Cisco is how much we really focus on our customers, what their challenges are. In fact, a lot of our innovation agenda is predicated around solving those challenging problems that our customers bring to us. It is a broad, broad portfolio with integrated solutions. I mean, you look at it in its basic level, the four kind of major technologies that I, that, that I would I would kind of lump, that I, would, that I would articulate the core technology areas for us. We do a lot more. That's why I'm stumbling a little bit on that. I don't want to oversimplify it. But for the listeners, it's networking, data center technology. So think data center networking as well as servers and infrastructure. Collaboration, think unified communications, voice, video, rich media. And then security. We actually have a rich portfolio of security offerings, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit about. So that's kind of Cisco overall. What I do want to share a little bit, if you'll let me, is that I kind of look at Cisco through a few lenses. We have and we deliver outstanding innovation to our customers. We have about 19,000 patents 
believe it or not, like a, a long legacy of innovation. We've done over 200 acquisitions since 1993. We actually have a reputation of being one of the more acquisitive companies out there. And we invest about $6.3 billion a year in R&D. Now, the last two stats that I'll share with you that I think are really defining for the impact that we have in the market from a just a breadth perspective, 80% of the world's data runs on Cisco networks. And if you look at our security portfolio and what we do globally, We've got about 135 billion requests per day are served by our OpenDNS part of the business over 160 countries. So this is secure web lookup. So if you think about just the breadth of internet traffic that that sees, it's vast. What's the current footprint of Cisco across Asia Pacific then? Yeah, fantastic. So this is what I love about Asia Pacific. It's such a diverse region. We actually have some fantastic innovation that we do here. Cisco's got a little over half of our employees are here, about 39,000. And we're actually the second largest R&D center globally for Cisco. The, the teams in the region are responsible for about 900 of the patents that we've done. So a pretty good footprint, especially given that that innovation hub started later in Cisco's lifespan. We also do, and, and I, I didn't talk about this earlier when you asked me about the, the company, but a couple of things I want to highlight both at a global level and then what we do locally. We do a lot of, so, so in addition to innovating for our customers, we actually really do what we can to try to have an impact on the world around us. So from an investment perspective at the global level, we've got about $2 billion that we invest in. Right now, it's across about 120 companies. Here in APJ, we've got 27 active investments alone, which just says kind of that we're, we're really interested in trying to fuel the innovation in the region that, that's coming out of companies that are that have started up in the region and that are that are driving innovation agendas in many cases that are unique to the challenges that um, Asia Pacific faces. You know, the other thing we do is we we try to give back more socially. So two things I want to highlight real quick that I think are really important, in particular to Asia Pacific. At the global level, we've got something called the Networking Academy, and we train about a million students a year in you know basic information communication and technology skills. Now, this is to help those students with their career aspirations, help them find jobs, be productive, you know, and actually go after those professional aspirations. We've actually trained about almost 8 million students across 180 countries since 1998. Now, what's really great about that in Asia PAC, we collaborate with about, it's about 1,500 higher education institutions, about 1,400 actually, in addition to nonprofits and governments and local agencies to bring this capability into the countries in the region. Over the years, we've trained about a little over a million, it's 1.3 million people. Two things that I think are really fascinating that I want to share. One is 27% of those graduates are female, which for this region and to see the, the, the regular introduction of females into science technology is just fantastic. So really, really excited to see that penetration. We'd love to get it to grow. I think all of us here at Cisco want to see those numbers continue to increase, but it, it is differentiated in the region. And we've done it across 28 countries. If you think about this motion and kind of this capability, we're doing two things, right? You're helping people develop inside their own economies, but we're also those, those individuals go into their economies and help those economies develop. So I just think it's a fantastic part of what we do here in the region. And there's pretty fantastic numbers about trying to improve the quality and also quantity for the STEM education across the region. So what is your role and coverage in Cisco then? Yeah, brilliant. So 
you know, I talked about, you know, people know Cisco as a networking company, and we do have the other technologies that I shared. We're actually a market leader, either one or two in almost every market we serve, which is one of the cool things about Cisco. I have the benefit of leading the enterprise networking business. I'll come back to my title, software and network transformation, and how kind of that fits in. But at the most kind of tangible level, I have responsibility for our networking portfolio, and it's over half the business here in the region. It is the core products of routing, switching, wireless for our non-service provider customers. So if you think about it, networking is delivered by a lot of the service providers out there, you know, here in Singapore, you know, Singtel is obviously one of the top providers along with others. You know, you've got NTT in, in Japan, go on and on. I have responsibility for our networking products outside of that. So think large multinationals down into small and medium businesses, schools, governments, et cetera. So that's my portfolio. And I I have responsibility for that across all of Asia Pacific and Japan. I don't have responsibility for China. I love the region. It's, It's immense geographically, phenomenal cultural and economic diversity. And what I do in that role kind of coming back to the, the, the title, we are, and, and I'll, I'll go through this a little bit more as we get into more about the business, but we are going through a big transition in networking. It's kind of moving from being, you know, hardware that delivers underlying connectivity. It'll always do that, but uh, to being more software driven. And there's a, there's a lot of transitions going on in the market there, both in our campus portfolio, as well as in some of your listeners may have heard of software-defined WAN, really, really over that WAN architecture. So, a lot of what we're doing right now is helping to lead that transition with our customers and, and to lead in some of those consumption models from, hey, I buy you know hardware and infrastructure and let it be. Most of our customers now, many of them are actually moving to more interesting consumption models, you know, things as a service, more OPEX oriented, et cetera. So part of what I do is to help drive that transition in the region. So what are the problems that you are helping your customers to solve? And what are the products and services from Cisco that helped enable that? I understand you allude to most of your customers are shifting from a very CapEx intensive type of expenditure now to a very OPEX kind of service, software as a service model. Yeah. Listen, at its core, I'm a networking guy. What I deliver into the market, what I talk to customers about is networking. If you start there, the easiest way to say it is I help customers connect everything they need connected, right? In some cases, those are things that are connected today that they need done differently, more with a better user experience, more resilient, more secure, et cetera, to deliver on the business outcomes that they're trying to deliver. And in many cases, you know, you the term digital transformation gets thrown around a lot these days. I was joking with my peers here at Cisco a couple of months ago that both of us come from the consulting space, and I always think the buzzwords are going to die after a little while. I thought, you know, a few years back, this was another one of those buzzwords. It's not. And I'll tell you, out there every day, talking to my customers in the region, companies that aren't even customers, but trying to work with them on what they're objectives are. This is here to stay. And and it absolutely represents a shift in business for many of our customers. In some cases, huge opportunities. In some cases, big challenges. And for us, the network is at its core, right? The network is what connects and enables those digital transformations. To maybe make it a little bit more tangible, if you're an employee in a company and you leverage wireless in your office, 
that's part of our products, right? That's one of the solutions. We help our customers deliver a WAN architecture that helps connect them, whether you're a, an employee with a company or whether you're a consumer in a retail store with those software as a service players in the cloud, right? It's a lot of our networks that that goes over. We go as far as to help companies to think of a couple of extreme examples. Think about IoT, think about autonomous vehicles, right? We do a lot to help companies connect those into their business operations to help to drive those that automation. It's almost endless given how significant Cisco plays in that market. The one thing I do want to expand on a little bit is our customers' problem. You, you kind of asked about that and I think that it bears a little bit of, uh, there's some focus that's maybe relevant there. Listen, I see our customers really focus on maybe three or four things in the digital journeys that they're after. One is, if they're thinking about it correctly, to be honest, is the user experience, and most are. Whether it's customers, you know, their customers, their employees, their students, their citizens, user experience is everything. You know, we, Gartner did a piece in 2016 that I thought was fantastic that talked about how nine out of 10 companies will actually compete on user experience, that that has started to become a real pivot for how companies compete. So user experience, I think, is one of the biggest problems our customers face is how to deliver a fantastic one. Obviously, with some of the products that we deliver and the solutions, resiliency and reliability. We deliver critical infrastructure. Think medical devices. Think I mentioned before, autonomous vehicles, defense applications, right? We've got things that are mission critical and we've got to keep our networks up and running and resilient. Agility, I'll talk a little later, but we, we've made the network as much as we deliver fantastic networking, we've made it actually hard to manage. We've got to make it simpler because these customers really want agility. And then last and, and certainly not least is security. Particularly in this region, it's one of the most attacked regions in the world, whether you look at malware, denial of service, you know, all the attack vectors. Asia Pac as a region is actually the most attacked region on, on a number of those factors. And, you know, from my perspective, our customers are in a desperate fight to do more and more to create a secure environment. And one of the things that we're really excited about is the fact that the network can play a huge role in that. So as I take my technologies out, as I talk to customers, really talking about the role the network can play is a huge thing. You know, our, our competitors and, and many others think of security as a perimeter thing. And for us, we kind of assume that somebody's going to get through that firewall at some point in time, either maliciously because they hacked it or it could be something as innocent as an employee, you know, employee's credentials inside of a company getting compromised. They don't know it and somebody's in your network. So it is a big part of what we're trying to solve in the market today. Pretty interesting to you to talk about digital transformation from the perspective of your customers. I guess I'm also interested to know what are the interesting use cases in different industries which you can share with my audience across Asia Pacific. You know, it's interesting. This is a hard question to answer for two reasons. One is, you know, different people find different things interesting. So I get a little bit geeky sometimes with the technology and it can be kind of a boring use case, but what we can do with the technology is really cool. What I want to talk about first though is let, let's play to the bigger audience here because I do find this stuff exciting and some of the neat kind of impactful use cases we have. So India is where I want to start. Everybody knows the size of the population, the development challenges, and huge opportunities that India has as a country. And one of the things that we've played a big role in that's a huge use case for networking in particular are smart cities. So really thinking about how can the network help to take these large cities and enable governments to create a better environment for their citizens. Everything from 
you know, safety and security applications with CCTV and monitoring, citizen services, connectivity, just the ability to, in, you know, highly dense environments, allow citizens to go on the internet to find, you know, bus schedules, et cetera, and navigate their daily lives through wireless. And then to help the municipalities with their efficient operation, things, things like smart lighting, smart traffic, all of which is enabled by networking. Now, you know, you're probably looking at it going, well, hold on a second. Networking isn't the only thing that can, that, that, that's going to be there to deliver that kind of impact. And you'd be absolutely right. All of the things that we do, the network is really at its core, but we rely heavily on just an outstanding ecosystem of partners to work with to deliver these use cases for our customers. So smart city is the big one. You know, you go down into a, a country like Australia and the pervasiveness, the, the criticality of, of an industry like mining. We've helped the mining industry over the year, not just in Australia, but worldwide, but it's, it's relevant in, in Asia Pac to really think about how do we help them be more productive? So autonomous mining vehicles to reduce the risk of putting a human in some of those hazardous environments. So really helping them to protect the lives of the people on their payroll, but also be more productive, more productive in the process, right? I, I heard a stat recently, I, I don't know how widespread it is, but from one of our, our customers that five minutes of downtime on one of their vehicles cost them a million dollars. So you start to think about how much that impacts an organization. You know, we can do things like sensors, connect in sensors that are on the vehicles to do preventative maintenance. And then you can kind of move into the operational facilities and the automation that we can deliver there through factory floor automation that is all enabled by the network. And then last, and maybe a little bit more mundane, if you will, to some of the listeners, I love, and this is this is true across a number of the, re- the, the number of the countries that we work in, our university customers I love what they do with our technology. Like we give them technology, we implement it, and they've got teams who will go in and do marvelous things with it. So with our wireless technology and some of the software that we can deliver with that, we help universities deliver an outstanding experience to their students, their staff, their teachers, and really enable them to move outside of the classroom, right? And that's kind of obvious. That's just using wireless technology. We're all used to it. But we have a couple of universities that are starting to use the location-based services that we can see, not compromising anybody's identity, not compromising any privacy laws, but to look at the flow of people across the university and to do things like identify which part of their facilities are really serving the student's interests better, which ones aren't, and to take action when it's not. To do things like control their electricity costs if they have parts of the campus that aren't being highly leveraged. So really some cool use cases of customers taking our technology and doing you know, really impactful things with it. So, so that's pretty interesting because your use case seems to go through different facets of whether it's in Asia Pacific from the emerging to the developed markets. So I want to shift gears a little bit to a different conversation, discuss a little bit about software and network transformation across Asia Pacific. I think you have discussed it a little bit during when you were talking about the problems that you're helping your customers to solve. What are the challenges to enable software and network transformation across Asia Pacific? Yeah, I want to frame this with a couple of statistics because I think it'll hit home some of the most basic challenges. Gartner did a prediction that said there were going to be 63 million connections 
into the network every second by 2020. And this is really a result of the explosion of IoT or the coming explosion of IoT. We're already seeing it. I think last year for the first time, mobile traffic exceeded wired traffic in Asia Pacific and I think globally as well. So just the immense demands on the network are huge. Um, the second stat I want to share is IDC has predicted that there will be a million new devices added onto a network. So think onboarded onto a network every hour by 2020. You go back to what I talked about with digital transformation, our customers really trying to, to keep up with the services and outcomes they want to deliver to their customers. With this load on the network, with these challenges and to take advantage of these opportunities, although we've delivered and continue to deliver outstanding network, we've made it hard, right? Networks still a very manual, manual environment, you know, whether it's a router, a switch, a wireless access point, you go in device by device to do your configurations, to in many cases onboard new devices, to troubleshoot the network. You know, the data center went through this transition over the last probably four or five years where automation has really come in, the ability to abstract data center infrastructure and really bring software-defined networking into the data center. We're in the middle of going through that in the campus networks today. So in many of those use cases, the our customers' ability to operate, manage, to troubleshoot those networks is still very manual today. And that is probably above all else, the big shift that we're going through. So helping our customers take advantage of the new software innovations that we've delivered to abstract that complexity, deliver a single control point, and really help our customers think differently about the way that they manage their networks. And just to give you, we, we do this in our digital network architecture with uh, an approach to networking called intent-based networking. So it's kind of, you know, you define that intent, what you want to do, and rather than go out and, you know, touch every box in your network, which can be thousands upon thousands in a large network, you really define it once and the software works with the network devices themselves to make that happen, right? An example that, that your uh, listeners could understand is, you know, I want to enable my retail store. I want to enable the customers I have coming in and my employees with wireless access into the network and to get access to uh, an inventory application I have or something like that. Now, one of the things I would say about this transition is that it's a, it's a big shift for our customers. So getting them comfortable with handing over control of their networks into software is a journey. But I'll tell you the results we're seeing are fantastic. We're talking about helping our customers reduce the cost they spend by well over half of what they spend today, the time it takes them to deliver services by, you know, two, two X in many cases, like really, really deeply improving their ability to deliver outcomes. The only other thing I'd share that is key to that transition that we're driving is also helping them capitalize on leveraging the network to deliver a more secure foundation for their customers, right? To protect their interests, protect their customers, their employees, their citizens, you know, whomever it is. One example I'll give there of some of the innovation that we've delivered is actually we've got a capability now that allows our customers to detect malware in encrypted traffic without decrypting it as it traverses their network. So really trying to give them these tools. But I'll tell you, for our customers, to think about the network playing a role in security is a bit of new ground. They tend to think very much firewalls, email security, web security, you know, things that we're all used to in the consumer space as well. So that's a big part of that transition that we're trying to drive. Most Asian companies currently are undergoing digital transformation. Where do you see Cisco's place in the ecosystem then? Yeah, I probably hit on that a good bit, right? We're foundational, right? In digital transformation, I was trying to think uh, 
if there are any examples of digital transformation that don't rely on a network at some level, because, you know, whether it's the classic, you know, the classic examples of transformation, the Ubers of the world, the Amazons, all of it goes over a network. And so we are really at its core. But I want to come back to what I shared about Cisco and its role. We're an enabler in that market, you know, irrespective of the technology. You know, we've spent time on networking. That's what I have responsibility for. Whether you're looking at security, which plays a huge role in a company's digital transformation or a country's digital transformation, you know, collaboration and how we engage our data center technologies, all of it. Cisco is an enabler. We really rely on a huge network of partners to help bring together all those pieces to help our customers actually deliver the outcomes they're looking for in digital transformation. The other thing I think we can do just a phenomenal job of here in the region is I talked earlier about our reach as a company, you know, and I've shared some great examples of things that we've done here in Asia Pacific and Japan, but we have examples across the world. And one of the things that I try to do in my day-to-day I try to bring my customers here in the region together with customers who are outside the region to learn how are they approaching some of the challenges in digital transformation in some of their unique environments and really try to drive that knowledge sharing. So for me, I really feel like we're an enormous enabler in this whole process and can be that critical partner for our customers as they go through these journeys. So I guess this is the part that I really want to have a geek out with you because I know you are a fan of looking at new technologies and and what is really driving innovation forward. So what are the interesting technologies within your area of coverage that you have seen in the US or elsewhere that will be important in networks? For example, what are your thoughts on something like mesh networks, blockchain technologies, or IoT? Yeah, I love where technology is headed. So I want to actually want to talk about three. I want to put them in time. So there's one that I think for the network, we have started to leverage extensively And I can't tell you how excited I am about the prospects we have in the future for how this is going to impact the way that we do technology and our customers. And that's machine learning, this whole artificial intelligence move. And I talked a bit ago about our digital network architecture and how we're trying to make networks more resilient for our customers. I also talked about, you know, the encrypted traffic analytics, that capability of looking at malware in encrypted traffic. Both of these things rely heavily on machine learning, right? We do that ability to look at malware by looking at the pattern of the network or the pattern of the flow of that malware across the network. And it creates a digital signature that we can identify using machine learning. You know, on the network side with DNA, we've just introduced DNA assurance that actually uses machine learning to look at how the network is operating, to look at when issues occur in the network, to correlate those events, to look at it over time, and to basically create a repository of patterns that if you play it forward, can start to say, as this condition starts to happen on a network, an outage is going to happen, which then allows us to intervene allows us to fix the problem before problem happens. And that goes back to helping our customers deliver an outstanding user experience because that user experience is not impacted. So this is just one small, small example of how I think machine learning and AI is here now and helping us really deliver differentiated outcomes. And by the way, it, we're just at the very beginning of that. You know, you mentioned blockchain, absolutely huge, but we haven't brought it heavily into the network yet. Cisco is doing a lot of research. We are involved in a lot of the blockchain research going on across academia, across industry, the various standards bodies. We're heavily involved in this. 
We do see it as what I would call internet scale disruption. It is a revolutionary protocol. And where it plays into the network is really where security is critical, where you kind of need this trust model to engage in a network connection. You know, we're looking at how blockchain and distributed ledger technologies can be used as a way of kind of moving past that single point of failure that we have in in some of those that handshake technology today. And I think it's got a lot of potential applications and that's probably on the near term horizon for how we start to bring that into different parts of the network. And then, you know, certainly in my space, the one that has me the most excited. I am not a, a deep engineer. I'm not a physicist. So I certainly am going to talk about this in very layperson's terms. I think even the scientists that are exploring it are still trying to understand why it works this way. But quantum networking is the thing on the horizon that I think holds some of the biggest promise to really disrupt the way that we think about networking today. So The basic premise is you can create two photons and there's this concept of entanglement. And the way that works is that when those photons are removed from each other, they're basically a mirror image. And at least the best of what I know, scientists don't really understand why it works this way, but you've got two photons a distance apart from each other and you make a change to one, that same change is mirrored in the other. So you think about this, it's basically communication that happens without a network, right? Without a traversal of that signal from one to the other. And this has huge implications on networking. And there were some Chinese scientists last year that made some advances with some, some study they did or a, an example that they put forth where they took a satellite and actually were able to make this entanglement work about 300 miles from Earth and across two base stations, 70, 750 miles apart on Earth. And those photons remained entangled across that distance, which kind of takes us away from connectivity. So, you know, huge implications for just networking itself and huge implications for security. And I think you see a trend here, right? Some of these technologies are both about networking and about security. But the reason that quantum networking has an impact there is if if you remove the traversal of the signal, you remove the ability for a malicious actor to step in and actually tap into that signal. And there's also a behavior in the photons where if you do try to change anything, both photons change. So you know if somebody has tried to hack in. So it's it's, it's a really, really interesting space that I think is going to accelerate with some of the advances we saw last year. That's very interesting. As a former theoretical physicist myself, I think that the concepts of non-locality and quantum entanglement are now beginning to come into the real world with real physical applications. I should have asked you to talk about that. I, uh, I didn't know your background there. I think, I think it's fantastic. I really do. I, it's, it's super exciting. So I want to ask this question. I'm currently in the business of using bits to shift atoms. It is likely that Asia will be the first to roll out to launch 5G. And this probably will jumpstart and enable new applications. I think mainly will be in video or things that will require a lot more network capabilities, such as autonomous vehicles, drone self-driving cars. What are your thoughts on that? You know, 5G has awesome potential. And, you know, we all in our day-to-day lives, whether it's in yeah, as a consumer or, or part of whatever business that you do, everybody wants bandwidth. Everybody wants it to be fast. Everybody wants it to be responsive. And, you know, 5G, I think they're talking 20 gigabits per second. 
you know, less than a millisecond of latency, right? These things that really enable those applications. So you talk about autonomous vehicles, things which the thing about autonomous vehicles is actually not the bandwidth, it's the latency requirement. So that if there is something that has to happen, you know, time is obviously of the essence if it's, you know, stopping an accident from happening. Things like, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, you know, the Olympics just happened. That was a big trial for 5G, you know, and the, the density that 5G allows at the you know, high throughput, low latency has some really, really cool applications in the consumer experience or the user experience, you know, to put yourself in, you know, the, the half pipe as, you know, the snowboarders are going down, right? There's, there's lots of things that can happen there. I think it's really exciting. I think there's some challenges as well. 5G is a, to get to that bandwidth and to get to that low latency uses high frequency, which is actually kind of short distance. It's harder to get around things like trees and other obstacles. And man, for the batteries that we have today, it's going to drain fast. These are some technical challenges that we've got to get through. I think the biggest one is going to be economic and who's going to pay for it, right? What is the killer app, that use case? And you know, back to where I started with my consulting days, like it all comes down to the use case and the, is that really practical? Are people really going to buy into it? Like what is the use case that's going to bring enough dollars to really allow the 5G rollouts to be economically viable for the companies that are putting them forth. I think it's going to happen, but I do think some of those challenges need to be worked through for us to see that start to play out. The thing I do love is in, in APJ more than anywhere, we have markets like India where spectrum is scarce. So the more you can pack into that spectrum in high density areas actually has huge positive implications on the country. And then you've got the you know parts of Indonesia that are really sparsely populated where other technologies are going to need to come in to really help to you know bring internet at its most basic level to more people. But the mobile presence here in this region, I think we've got a huge potential for 5G, as you said, to, to start here because we'll have more people that will tap into it. Brink, many thanks for coming on the show to share your thoughts on software, network, and, you know, all the new technologies that is going to be happening in the Asia-Pacific region and also across the world. So in closing, I want to ask you two questions. The first, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything which recently made an impact for your work and personal life? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It was, it was actually hard. Like, I'm a voracious reader, but it's always hard for me to, like, point out the one that really made an impact. So, Listen, I'll give a few. I mentioned earlier, you know, I talked a little about machine learning and artificial intelligence. Like I have a bit of a passion in that space. I, I spent my life, whether it was in consulting, whether it was in operations here at Cisco, a lot in data and how data can be used at a really big level. But it, back to that practicality and that kind of thinking about business leaders and how they make decisions, there was a great article in the New York Times back in November Sorry for the American periodical source, but the New York Times back in November called, Can AI Be Taught to Explain Itself? And I think it was just so spot on for something that we're going to have to figure out in this technological innovation that's happening around AI. The basic premise was a business leader making a critical decision, whether it's about, you know, a multinational company and a business decision, whether it's a doctor, you know, we, we hear use cases of AI being leveraged and, and machine learning being leveraged to pick out, you know, cancer through a multitude of variables. For a doctor to make a life or death decision, we're going to have to understand how the AI, how the machine learning arrived at its conclusion. And there isn't a lot happening right now commercially for some of those models to explain how they arrived at the conclusion they did. So I just thought in terms of technology, it really impacted the way I think about it. And I thought it was spot on. 
On a more personal note, I recently read Lincoln on the Bardo by George Saunders. It, it won the Booker Prize last year. I think it's referred to as an experimental novel. It was, it was a very interesting read, both in terms of what it did for literature, but also just the its deep view of humanity and kind of big reminder on what it means to have a relationship with your kids and how you love them and what it means to engage with those around you. It was just a, I found it a very, very powerful book. So I'd recommend it to anybody. And I, I do have to add into that a recommendation to stick with it. It took me probably a good 50 pages to get used to the style of writing. And I guarantee by the end, you get to it where it actually is, uh, is really powerful. So Anyway, a couple of uh, very different angles. So for me, I would just recommend any Duke's thinking in bets. You want to get a little bit of understanding of making business decisions, you should probably read this book because Annie Duke was probably, she almost did a PhD in cognitive science and then became a professional poker player. And now she's teaching people about how to think of decisions in the view of bets, including like making bets on technologies as well. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'll read it. So my last question, how do my audience find you? Uh, listen, the two best places for me, I use Twitter. I'm not as active as I'd like to be. I'm trying to get better at it. But it's Brink Sanders, my Twitter handle. And then at LinkedIn, you can, uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, I leverage it pretty extensively. You can find me at Bernard Leung or bernardleung.com. You can subscribe to me at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, ACOS, and Google Play in the US market. Tweet to me, give us a five-star rating on iTunes, and of course, give us a star on Overcast. And once again, Brink, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Bernard. It was fantastic. Appreciate it.